if we are to achieve anything close to net zero over whatever period of time you want to claim, we are going to have to invest in our industries to change them, not starve them of capital. We need to have an investment program, not a divestment program. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we take a deep dive into the future of ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing. To help us understand the promises and the limitations of ESG, we're very pleased to have Terry Keeley join the show. Terry is a finance industry veteran with an insider's perspective on the growth of ESG and what tools could be more effective at altering corporate behavior and could lead to better climate outcomes. He is also the author of Sustainable, Moving Beyond ESG to Impact Investing. He talks today with Joseph Micah, the director of the Energy Program. And here's Joseph to lead the conversation now. Uh, Terry Keeley, I'm really happy that you're joining us on the CSIS podcast today. And thank you very much for writing this book. You know, as we confront issues in energy and climate change, ESG is one of the largest challenges for the industry and for our political leaders to understand. I'm really grateful you're going to help us work our way through it today. Well, it's an honor to be with you, uh, Joseph. Thank you so much for the invitation. So let's dive right in. The, the book is sustainable, and it's your both critique and case for a renewed sense of ESG. So maybe we can just start with what is the background and what's the thesis for, for the piece? And then we'll dive into the details. Well, th thanks, Joseph, for that opportunity. I'm, I'm a 40-year veteran of the financial services industry. Uh, let's remember the ESG movement is about five, six years old, if you want to date it back to the origins of the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing, that's to 2005. But an entire multi-trillion dollar industry, 40 trillion uh, in terms of actual AUM, 120 trillion, if you want to use the description of ESG integrated assets, has been built around it. It is premised in effect on at least two goals. One, that we have to redirect capitalism to account for a number of negative externalities that perhaps capitalism hasn't done a very good job about, a principal one being climate but also income inequality, any number of other social goals. And at the same time, you can have great returns. And so the book is actually a, a fairly important deep dive, not only on that, but also on the broad concept of stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism, which ultimately is the intellectual framework in which ESG operates. So let's start very high up, actually. What does Milton Friedman get wrong? You know, this article, Milton Friedman's uh, What is the, the Purpose of Business, was written in 1970. And you have to transmogrify yourself, like Calvin and Hobbes, back to 1970 to really understand why he wrote the article. There was a big problem at the time, candidly, Joseph, that you may recall, that a growing number of industries were becoming less efficient. America had been this leader for decades. And yet there were growing pressures on businesses back then to solve other problems than the ones that perhaps their shareholders may prioritize. Milton Friedman wrote an article that uh, highlighted appropriately that if businesses are not generating profits, no one else will. The case for wealth can only be earned by highly successful businesses. Uh, I spend some time talking about the you know, greatest stakeholder capitalist in history, American history anyway, which was Henry Ford. And everyone knows how Henry Ford transformed the country of the world for the better, but also very much benefited his local communities. So in many ways, Milton Friedman was saying, let business be business, let business focus on profits. And of course, he was right. 
Uh, at the same time, the less appreciated uh, subtext in Milton Friedman's book is the businesses are being run for the owners of the company, the owners of capital. And ultimately, they have the right to weigh in and say what those companies should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. Did you see my Fortune magazine article on was Milton Friedman the first world capitalist? Yeah. Yeah, perhaps going down that road would be helpful. Yeah, we can. Go ahead. What it points out is that since 1970, shareholders have been repeatedly intervened to, I would say, force corporations to take a more long-term view and, frankly, to prioritize their interests and needs at a much higher level. In the 70s, you know, the Penn Central bankruptcy, which was the largest bankruptcy at the time and the largest bankruptcy until Enron decades later, pointed out that there were no internal audit committees. So a few years after that, with the SEC and other regulators, that every U.S. corporation had to have an internal auditing function so that we could at least believe the numbers that they were reporting. Later, more than a decade later, if you remember Victor Posner and all of these aggressive takeover artists who were buying companies and completely fleecing them, selling off their assets, corporate raiders. Well, if you're CalPERS, CalSTRS, if you're any public pension plan, this is taking away your wealth. So they imposed a number of shareholder votes imposed upon corporations, poison pill takeovers. If you fast forward to today, uh, what you see is a growing number of shareholder resolutions are asking, exhorting, or requiring uh, corporations to be more mindful of their carbon footprint or more mindful of what their impact may be on the environment. There was the famous vote at DuPont recently, uh, where 85% of shareholders voted for DuPont to ask themselves the question, where are all your plastic pellets ending up? Biggest creator of plastic in the world. Well, it turns out 10 trillion of them are ending up in the ocean every year. And the shareholders are saying to the corporate leaders, this is a question that we have to look at. This could imperil our long-term financial welfare. So I believe all of this is consistent with the original Milton Friedman article, which is, yes, shareholders own the company. They want those companies to have the greatest possible value over the long run. We live in a day and age, Joseph, I know you and your colleagues at CSIS agree with this, where increasingly that will require mindfulness for what we are doing to our land, our water, and our air. Right. So one of the interesting pieces, threads that you pull on in the book that I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, I come from a climate background. And one of the things I've, I've observed when I talk to climate scientists, you gauge their, their relative degree of, of worry or concern about what greenhouse gas emissions do to the planet, is you often actually encounter some of the most fervent worry amongst people who study the longest timescales of climate or so-called paleoclimate, because that's people who understand how qualitatively different the world is when it warms four degrees C on average or cools six degrees C on average. Jim Hansen spent a lot of his career looking at the long-term cycles of climate compared to like meteorologists, which as a cultural observation, sometimes are less concerned because they're so aware of daily changes in temperature. But your book talks a little bit about the sort of dual challenge that finance faces, right? Both you talk about significant economic risks from climate change, which will imperil long-term growth. And you talk about the responsibility that firms have, or like society has, to make sure we have enough resources to fund retirements and to continue to provide for economic growth going forward. So how should we think about, or how should our audience think about these kind of two timescales and, and a longer timescale of consideration? Why didn't we have it 30 or 40 years ago? 
Well, of course, 30 or 40 years ago, we weren't as aware, right, of how our anthropomorphic activities were really impacting our water, air, and land. And what's important to remember too, Joseph, is how much the world has changed in, in a very a few decades. I mean, in 1980, 46% of the human souls on the planet were living on less than $1.91 a day. That is the absolute poverty level. 41 out of every two, in effect. By 2019, prior to the pandemic, uh, that had fallen to 9% of the globe. What that meant was an extraordinary amount of wealth had been created in the decades, primarily in Asia. Yep, no, no question about it. But the actual extraordinary impacts on that, particularly on climate and, and on carbon emissions, uh, is something now that has come into clearer focus. You know, the mantra that's repeated throughout the book is uh, inclusive, sustainable growth. It is a tripod. What I believe the moment, our moment, our era and the eras to come will require is this multivariable calculus of making sure we continue to grow. Because as you say, while we're 8 billion souls on the planet today, we will cap out somewhere between 9.7 and 10 billion by the end of the century. So we're still welcoming more members of the human family to Earth every year, and we'll, that will continue for a while. We will achieve peak population sometime. In, but then what we have is a situation where if every single one of those human beings were to aspire to the standards of living that we have in the West, and we don't change our consumption patterns or don't change our energy sources, some of those very extreme scenarios, 4%, 5% degree C, become a reality. So, so if we cannot continue to grow, because that's what per capita income will require, uh, but do so in a manner which is ultimately sustainable and more inclusive, that is to say more and more people who have not had the full benefits of economic growth enjoying I think we're in a very combustible uh, situation, but uh, combustible from both an environmental perspective, but also a social perspective. Here's a statistic I really struggle with, Joseph. Today, for the first time in history, a majority of Americans between the ages of 19 and 24 think socialism would be better than capitalism. For the first time in history. And I try in the book to wrap my brain around this. What, what, what's going on? Well, what the next generation sees is extraordinary amounts of wealth. We live so well relative to, and yet we're doing so in a way which seems to be excluding members of the human family. They don't have the same access to the opportunities. And you don't have to be a genius to see how these devastating storms in Pakistan or in Florida or are also their own challenge. Let's be clear about what climate change means, though, financially. It is both risks and opportunities. There will be winners and losers. There will be clear technologies that will gain favor. There will be whole industries that, frankly, go away. There will be large areas of the world which will become less and less habitable, uh, including Beijing, by the way. Beijing is about to be swallowed by the Gobi Desert. I think it's now 100 days a year where the air is a multiple of what it's supposed to be in Beijing. Uh, so tens of millions of people are going to have to move to Nanking uh, eventually. And this really foretells a, a lot of changes. For example, in the mortgage-backed securities market, uh, we right now securitize mortgages in Florida and Montana for the exact same cost through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Ginnie Mae. When in, factual, in actual fact, the risks between ownership of homes and those is very, very different. And you just look at this last storm in Florida, 
it will devastate private insurance. No private insurer or reinsurer will be able to come back in and say, you know, here's a, a reasonable rate for you to continue to live on Sanibel Island. Won't be possible uh, because the insurance for that will be unaffordable. Let's talk a little bit about the critique that you made, right? Yeah. ESG is a relatively new phenomenon within the financial industry. And you make a critique of how it's not going to accomplish the goals that we just talked about, which is helping society address the risks of climate change while maintaining inclusive economic growth, right? Or sustainable and, and inclusive economic growth. So there's a couple of things that I'd like to talk about within that critique. The first is divestment. You know, from a political standpoint, advocates of divestment argue this has worked in the past, right? The case of apartheid is one that they'll raise. And they'll say, what we need to do is raise the cost of capital for fossil fuel production in particular, so that we sort of affect a supply side shift in the economy toward clean energy, and we're not sort of morally sacrificing ourselves. You address both of these arguments in the book. What's your case or what's your response to those arguments? Well, let's talk about the divestment argument first, uh, and then let's talk about the ESG product suite as a subset of, of this. No, uh, apartheid is a very, very bad example. A, apartheid, therefore B, divestment works. Divestment or the shunning of certain industries has been going on not just for decades, not just for centuries, but for millennia. The famous practice is usury, charging interest on loans, which was for uh, centuries and still to this day outlawed by a number of large religious groups. Muslims do not allow the charging of interest on loans. Uh, obviously, uh, this was a tenant in the Christian uh, church for, for centuries. But guess what? People were still making loans with interest. And pretty soon after uh, Martin Luther got involved, everyone said, well, geez, those loans actually are not such a bad thing. There was, so usury was dropped, certainly by the Christian church. And, and Muslims have all sorts of ways to get around making loans. But the, a more a recent example is, is the sin industries, right? So that's tobacco, gambling, firearms. And what we have in these cases is many, many, many institutions have shunned buying the debt or the equity of these types of institutions. But in actual fact, it's done nothing to slow people down from drinking beer, to slow people down from getting a cigarette or in you know, registered jurisdictions owning a, owning a firearm legally. So the case for if we simply hold capital away from companies that are doing bad things, bad things will stop happening. It is just been proven false time and again. And you talk about applying that very specifically to the oil and gas industry, which is the underlying thesis for so much of these ESG funds and where the claims of greenwashing comes from. I promise you, the argument is flawed on three uh, levels. Well, number one, that people are using the products and services of oil and gas companies. Those uh, products and services will be brought to market one way or another. Number two, uh, pretending that publicly listed corporations are in fact the keys to the kingdom is simply wrong. A statistic I don't need to tell you, Joseph, is that three quarters of oil and gas that is currently looked after on the planet is looked after by state-owned enterprises, not by the likes of BP or Total or Exxon, Saudi Aramco, Rosneft, Luke Oil. If we stop our own domestic energy champions from creating the oil and gas we need, we're simply going to be reliant upon Russians, Venezuelans, Nigerians, Saudis, and I don't have anything against those populations, but I don't have great feelings about how they actually might be great trading partners for our country or for anybody else for that matter. The third argument, though, that is important to remember on the divest versus invest 
is we need, if we are to achieve anything close to net zero over whatever period of time you want to claim, we are going to have to invest in our industries to change them, not starve them of capital. We need to have an investment program, not a divestment program, to genuinely achieve the goals of cleaning up our industry, finding better fuels, being far more efficient. I, I love the example of what Vicky Hollop has done right at Occidental Petroleum, created the largest carbon capture facility in the world. Do you know Vicky and her colleagues at Occidental cannot produce enough of the uh, oil and fuels that she can now say are carbon neutral, right. because the demand for that is so, so, so high. So we're going to need to continue to invest, not divest, if we're going to come to any hope of lowering our carbon footprint. So the other thing I'd love to learn from you is over the past few years, part of the argument has been, hey, we're going to do well by doing good, right? Shift an investment portfolio, create an ESG product, and this kind of new, greener investments are going to outperform the old fossil investments. Was that a mirage of the, of the time in which ESG arose? And particularly in 2022, as energy prices have spiked and a lot of legacy companies have turned out enormous profits, was it flat wrong? Well, I think, you know, I don't impugn the intentions of those who started the ESG movement at all. And I say repeatedly in the book, Joseph, that we should all want the ethos of ESG to reign. What do I mean by that? I happen to believe that greater intentionality, greater thoughtfulness, both by consumers as well as by corporations, obviously, or public leaders, will result in better outcomes. So let's just please, you know, all accept the thesis that in, those who want to do well and do good are valid in feeling that way. And those who want to serve or provide products and services that facilitate those goals had better get on with it because they're not doing a very good job yet. It's impossible for me to not address the, the ESG moniker uh, as part of the criticisms that I, I really hold for the whole industry. And to understand how we even ended up with ESG uh, you know, as a first principle really goes back to the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing, 2005, when a group of not about a dozen investors saying, you know, we should be far more concerned about environmental, social, and governance concerns. And a whole industry has since been built around that. Sadly, Joseph, no work was ever really done on whether or not E, S, and G make particularly good bedfellows, or whether or not one could actually put E, S, G into a single score or some kind of closet and have that have any type of, frankly, actionable information, insights, uh, alpha generating potential. E, S, G is an accident of history. It's not a sacred vow. And uh, an important part of what I say in the book and uh, some articles that I have coming out shortly is ESG need to divorce. They, they, they didn't belong together. If you're a Catholic, fine, we can do an annulment. But the reality is E, S, and G, any one of those variables by themselves is disqualifying for an, for an investment. If you had an excellent E score and an excellent S score, but a crappy G score, you could end up with a double A rating or a decent rating. But what we've just learned at FTX on G is that G alone is a sine qua non of any valuable investment. We, we shouldn't be conjoining our G concerns with an environmental concern or a social concern. Social, let's just look at S. I mean, the, the real challenge with S is that we live at a time where, frankly, yesterday's virtues are tomorrow's vices. And it's very, very hard to keep up on whether or not that is a alpha generating opportunity. By alpha generating, uh, let it be understood by the listeners, 
but I'm talking returns in excess of common indices like the S&P 500 or in fixed income Barclays Ag. I'm sorry if that's boring. It's all in the book. If it's not boring, read the book. If it's boring, don't read the book. But the point is that the S component is a particularly tricky one. Right. And the people who have started Just Capital, which was started by Paul Tudor Jones, have created an ETF with colleagues at Goldman Sachs that attempt to use S signaling as a way of generating alpha. What do they do? They take a survey of Americans every year. They ask, what is the most important thing? Income inequality, climate change. They reorder these and they map them back to a group of corporations, which they then underweight or overweight relative to the expressed social priorities of Americans. Well, that product has been out now for several years and it's underperforming the S&P 500. No alpha. There was no content in those signals that actually created better returns, let alone improved a social outcome, let alone improved an environmental outcome to get back to your line, double bottom line investing. So as you know, ESG as, a, as an overall concept is politically polarizing, right? For, in Washington, there's a lot of concern that ESG is sort of trying to make a, what should be a political conversation, trying to sneak in what should be a political conversation or should be something that's democratically debated here through representative government. There are concerns that ESG is risking global energy security by contributing to underinvestment in energy supply. I wonder what you make of those critiques. And importantly, as we look at having a split Congress next year, what are the smart critiques you'd like to see our political leadership address? And how can the political conversation help push some of the reforms that you think need to happen? A lot of what is underlying the ESG critique right now, Joseph, is uh, relates to the fiduciary rule and whether or not uh, financial services providers are actually abiding by the legal requirement of always providing their clients with you know, products and services that are in their best interests. Now, in their best interest becomes an interesting interpretation. In their best interest tomorrow, in their best interest two years from now, in their best interest 30 years from now. So there's a time horizon. But what's important is that the fiduciary rule is a fact of life for everybody operating in the financial services industry and not and a red line that no one should cross. There is a, a difference of opinion, right, on whether or not products and services that are ESG labeled are in fact uh, violating the fiduciary rule. I would argue they are not, but that's because if you look very, very closely at the fine print that is provided in each one of the prospectuses for these products, they say very clearly, we're not sure if this is going to have a better return. You, you have chosen to buy a product which is based on this index or that index, and that's the way it's going to be. Let me talk about the politics, though, and to the energy security uh, issue. I would completely agree with those who believe that the ESG movement has, in particular, made life difficult for Europeans. Uh, this broad, I would say, underlying premise that if we can just stop those bad oil and gas companies from creating oil and gas, we'll all be okay, has turned out in the form of tragedy on the European continent. And I genuinely hope that those who protested at Sharm el-Sheikh and those who are uh, continuing to put climate, which is a clearly important issue, above all else, you know, 1.5 degrees uh, C or we're all going to die. This is such an unhelpful way of thinking about the tangled, complicated problem that we need to solve, Joseph. And I know you and your colleagues at CSIS have been leaders in pointing out that 
We need more clean, affordable, reliable energy. Affordability and reliability are national security issues. And too many people in the ESG movement have taken their eye off that those two balls, hmm. uh, reliability and affordability. I, I know I uh, responded only to part of your question. Yeah. The other issue coming up with politics relates to stewardship. Who is able to speak on behalf of share owners? Uh, right now, you probably have a 401k. I suspect you have funds uh, with any one of the three big uh, service providers, State Street, Vanguard, or BlackRock, I suspect. If you do, you have almost certainly implicitly allowed them to vote your shares. There is a strong belief from the right that should not be the case, that you, Joseph, yourself should be voting your shares, your voice should be heard. And I agree with that. And I think most sensible people would. Here's the problem. State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock vote 160,000 times a year. Do you have time, Joseph, to cast those votes yourself? I'm devoted to this issue, and I don't have time to do that. <laughs> and so there is this big issue that Professor John Coates at Harvard and others have raised, that the, the index providers who are gathering assets massively, in, in, by the way, in something that is very socially beneficial because it's cheap. If you do own any one of those funds, you're probably paying one, two, three basis points a year instead of 100, 200, 300 basis points a year, which is what you would have paid a few decades ago. You're able to have access to the markets at a much cheaper level uh, than ever before. That is a social good. Hmm. But you have implicitly actually given your voting rights over to institutions. And there is a great deal of criticism, some valid, some not valid, about how those voting operations, those stewardship operations are being conducted. So the natural next question is, what's the path forward? Sustainable and inclusive economic growth, responding to the risks of climate change. I mean, you can imagine end states, right? Well, we continue as is. We, we move into a world where we've got some sort of globally harmonized carbon price. And, and there you've got sort of government regulation, which aligns the profit motive with the response to these risks. But we're going to have to live somewhere in between. So what do you see as the path forward where ESG is a broad concept, maybe it's changed its name, but where finance is playing an active role in responding to climate risks in a judicious and net positive way? For us, I think for us, humanity, to have the world that we aspire to, right? And to some degree, Joseph, I, as you know, I posit in the book this 1.6% uh, solution, which relates to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I do that not because I think we should all be in the swimming pool of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, but at least it is a framework, an important framework that sets out a number of very important objectives, you know, poverty, food, literacy rates, uh, healthcare, but also greener planets, a sustainable planet, very specific goals uh, that relate to how we're going to protect our air and water. And the 1.6 solution basically says capital owners will need to devote about 1.6% of investment to these ends. The stunning realization that I came to as I was finishing my book is actually how easy it would be for humanity. I've had this challenge the whole time because you look at the cost of decarbonization, if you pull out a big integrated assessment model, you know, it's not that much compared to global capital flows. So thank you so much for coming to this because uh, most of the interviews run out of time before we get to the solutions part. <laughs> the, the, the fact of the matter is we live in an era of extraordinary abundance. And the question is, what does that mean? What opportunities does that 
provide. I want to be clear. Business and finance cannot create a wonderful green world on its own if consumers are not pursuing consumption patterns that, that are aligned with that, or if public policies uh, don't support or regulatory policies don't support those same outcomes. Business and finance have no particular skills to turn the carbon clock backwards or frankly operate in some way which is completely disaffiliated with consumption and investment uh, as it's taking place. That said, Antonio Guterres, uh, UN Secretary General, has put a $3.5 trillion price tag, $3.5 trillion a year of incremental private spending to actually achieve the UN SDGs within the next decade. Well, that's where the 1.6 comes from. That is only 1.6% of the assets that institutional investors, institutional investors, pension plans, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, uh, central bank reserve managers, and ultra high net worth individuals, and by ultra high net worth individuals, I mean billionaires, if only 1.6% of their assets were dedicated explicitly to these impact goals, there's your 3.5 trillion, Joseph. So that's a statement of top level, right? Yes. But how do you imagine that being distributed? One of the things I've never understand about this is ESG, I've thought of typically in the past as a like risk reduction set of practices, right? We're going to move away from the physical risks of climate change, which I think are probably still underpriced. We're going to move away from the risks of energy transition, which, you know, a year ago might have been fairly priced. It uh, seems like there's a strong debate there. What I don't see is people saying we're going to take affirmative risk on carbon capture, on deploying hydrogen in Africa, on building power grids in emerging market. Those are risky activities, right? For all the political reasons, for all the institution building that has to happen. So how do you think about the distribution of 1.6? Sure. By the way, I completely agree with you that a lot of these climate risks are underpriced. And uh, of course, one of the big challenges that exists, you know, most of the decarbonization, whether or not it's coal fired power plants, you know, these investments need to be made in jurisdictions that are not necessarily investment grade. So absent the types of encouragements, first loss provisions that the World Bank or some other, you know, multilateral organization, African Development Bank could provide, Private capital is right to sit on the sideline. We need a lot more creativity from our public sector to arrive at the types of public-private partnership investments, uh, Joseph, that would really bring this to scale. And so in, in that respect, and I see this in the book, you know, the 1.6% is just the map. I can get there with the map. Okay, let's not say now implementation. Well, implementation, since neither you nor I own all that capital, it will be genuinely up to the individual investor. I'll tell you this, though. One, one thing I'm pretty convinced of is that any ideas that are out there at the VC stage that could genuinely transform our industrial processes or other very high carbon emitting activities, I actually believe all the venture capital that needs to be there for those things is there. I don't believe there's a want for funding at the VC level. I think of Bill Gates' breakthrough energy ventures, uh, his pledge to fund any technology that has the possibility of mitigating 1% of that 51 billion tons of carbon that are emitted. And those promises are there. The capital is there, perhaps too much capital. I spend a lot of time on energy Twitter, and it seems like a lot of companies are raising a lot of money right now. Yeah. But when we just go back to this, you know, coal-fired power plants and, you know, we're still, as you very well know, building more of them than we're decommissioning. The real problem with climate is that it's that multivariable calculus problem that you and I talked about. We need clean, affordable, reliable energy. And then it meets a collective action problem. Like, does Vladimir Putin even care? No, he wants 
a warmer world. A warmer world serves them very, very, very well, which leads to cynicism on lots of other people's you know, parts of, well, if China's not doing this or India's not doing this, why should we do that? That's a valid concern, by the way, Joseph, and I'm sure you and your colleagues at CSIS think a lot about what would happen to American competitiveness if we hold ourselves or Europeans hold themselves to one standard that is not being maintained by, by others? You know, Paul Ryan came up with a carbon border adjustment tax, which you've probably read about. So again, I want to come back to this. Public policy will matter. Uh, laws, regulations matter. Consumer preferences will matter. You talk about carbon taxes. I nod towards carbon taxes in the book. But let's just remember, among the many unfortunate things that Vladimir Putin has given us uh, in the last six months is a global carbon tax. And if anybody wants to know how a carbon tax feels, you've been feeling it. It's inflationary. It's unmasked how unprepared we really are for alternative energy sources and how we're going to continue to need these transition energy sources, uh, obviously with the high reliance on natural gas. But hopefully this does, and I think it is, you know, spur a lot more uh, attention to, as I mentioned in the Real Clear Politics article, what can be done with nuclear? What can be done with any number of these other, you know, hydrogen, other promising? And so, so, so the carbon tax that Putin has given us is in fact doing what a carbon tax would do, which is it's painful. Uh, but it's forcing us to accelerate plans. There's a lot of evidence of this in Europe as well. Yeah. Accelerate plans to get off of. Yeah. You know, we've spent a lot of time here at CSIS looking at the challenges, especially the LNG prices in the world right now are having on energy security in places like Pakistan, Bangladesh. And, you know, a carbon price is not meant to do those things, right? It's a source of stability, not volatility. But the challenge that we face I think we just had David Victor, the political scientist on our podcast several weeks ago, talking about his new book, Fixing the Climate. And in there, he and his co-author, Charlie Sable, talk about building sort of sectoral institutional interventions that happen between countries in a multilateral way. Because what we need to do is show institutional capacity to make this shift, because I completely agree with you. We weren't ready for this as a shock. The world will live, but it is definitely a painful moment for a lot of people around the world. And this is we didn't want it to happen like this, even those of us who are most enthusiastic about energy transition. Yeah, listen, I'm virtually certain that that is correct. Let's just remember, though, too, back to the energy justice question, that there are three and a half billion people on Earth who are living in an energy insecure environment, including, by the way, a number of Californians, and one billion people who are living in total energy poverty. They're relying upon biomass, they're burning dung, you know, that this is the way they read, this is the way they heat their homes and how they cook. And so, you know, we can just expect, I think we must expect, you know, Joseph, that our demand, frankly, for oil and gas is going to be quite high for quite some time. That's why I keep on saying, obviously, I'm somebody who leads more towards mitigation spending, you know, McKinsey put a $230 trillion price tag on the cost of net zero by 2050. Uh, maybe it was it the pandemic that just allowed us to start talking a trillion here, a trillion there, right? But the simple fact of the matter is, you know, the levees that we built after Katrina held uh, in the last storms. And I do believe that we will, as I say in the book, actually defeat climate change in no smart, small part because we anticipate it. And I think that there's a lot of areas of the world that um, may not seem particularly habitable right now. You know, Canada, uh, northern Michigan, in a century's time, we're going to say, well, of course, they, they could see this coming. Why didn't they do this? Uh, and I, I don't want that to sound defeatist to my nieces and nephews, some of whom have decided 
not to have children because they consider 1.5 degrees to be an existential event for humanity. An existential event for humanity, Joseph. I mean, it's, it's nutty. We have always, human beings have always adapted for centuries. And if you believe the William McCaskill arguments, we're here for, what, another 1.2 million years? That's the average life of the human species. So we better start thinking about a world in which we're all going to be able to survive. Got to start thinking long term. <laughs> we're coming to the end of our time. You've been really generous. I learned a lot from your book. I'm really grateful that you wrote it and that you joined us here today. I know that it's, there are parts of it that are controversial but I found it to be very insightful. Before we close, I want to ask you, since you come from the finance world, I come from the climate world. What's one thing that climate people get wrong about finance that you would, you would really like us to think more clearly about? Well, that's it's a great question. I'm going to tell a personal story. I believe you participated in the San Jacinto Project uh, with me that was held a wonderful event in Austin. And I was in a breakout session with Stephen Coonan, uh, as you know, who's written a wonderful book, Unsettled, that I think is a required reading, should be required reading for everybody in the climate space. And Stephen was talking about the science of climate. And obviously, as you know, there's much we don't know, much that is oftentimes said by various reports uh, asserted in ways that are taken as fact, when in fact, there's a range of outcomes. And Stephen was presenting this thesis as if we're all over-concerned about risks that may, may not happen. And I said, well, you know, Stephen, I agree with you, you know, you're the scientist, but let me tell you what a financier has to do with that information. We have to discount uncertainty. You would like to deal with certainties. Unfortunately, we have to put a price on uncertainty. That means that whatever you may think may happen, important decisions are already being made by smart, let's say, mortgage-backed securities investors not to own homes in Houston, not to own homes on the coast, not, to, not because they know something is going to happen. But there is a greater probability that something is going to happen. So to some degree, what I would love climate scientists to appreciate about financiers and vice versa is financiers are going to have to put a price on these risks. Uh, in fact, not doing so comes at their own peril. And to the financiers, what the climate science tells us, in, in my opinion, is one, these are genuine risks, but two, they could end up manifesting themselves in a wide variety of ways. I found myself oftentimes struggling at my former employer, for whom I have the greatest regard, BlackRock, uh, when everyone in, in the firm who was in the sustainable investment talked about net zero as an inevitability. This was inevitable. This is, this is a simple fact of life. And I'm scratching my head, you know, Joseph saying, well, no, this is all but inevitable. In fact, there's a wide range of possible outcomes. And financiers, investors who are looking after other people's money have to navigate that uncertainty appropriately. And so too do policymakers. Yeah. And Terry, thank you so much. Thanks to Terry for joining us this week. There's a link in the episode description to his book and a few recent articles. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.